Good morning, everybody. Good. Good Good to see y'all. It's always an honor to be here, and Demi and I look forward to any chance we get to come back and be with you guys at Mount Airy, and especially an honor to get to to speak and to share with you what I've been learning in Scripture. So I'm I'm thankful for that, and I want to jump right in. So let's let's pray, and we'll get started. Dear Lord, we thank you for for a new day to to be in your house and to be with your people. We thank you for your word and that it speaks to us, that it's living, and it has something to say to us today. We just ask that we would we'd be obedient to what we hear, that we would, we would listen today, prepared to act. We would, we would hear what your word says and that it would lead us to action, leave us to a, a life of faithfulness to you. Uh, speak through me today and uh, just help me to honor you. And we pray, amen. What is the single most important thing that you can do for the rest of your life to glorify God? That's a question that a man named John Haggai asked back in the 70s. Uh, to a group at his Christian institute in Singapore. And one of the young men listening was an Indian guy named K.P. Yohanan. And he wrestled over this question for years. It, his wrestling with this question sent him to the States where he would uh, re- receive theological training and, and then become a pastor in Dallas. He would continue to wrestle through all four years he was there pastoring. And then he finally came to the answer, what it was that he was to do for the rest of his life to honor and glorify God. And that was to begin a ministry uh, called Gospel for Asia. He and his wife started this ministry where they provided resources and training to local missionaries and um, all, all kinds of Christian literature and gospel tracts so that the lost of Asia and particularly in India um, and even into Africa, the, the region we call the 1040 window, could have access to the gospel. This is something that he devoted the rest of his life to is still going on today. Um, simply because he chose to answer that that question, uh, what it was he could do with his life to glorify God. And it was that that simple question that led him to devote his life to a single mission, and that was to proclaim the goodness of of Christ in places where it never had been before. And this is a, a commandment we're not... You know, strangers too here as a as a church, we're we're very familiar, I'm sure, with the Great Commission to go and tell in all nations. Uh, but I want to make clear that this is not something that's simply reserved for the the heroes of the faith, for the people who go to Boston and and to Kenya, for our our pastors and leaders. Uh, this is the lifestyle that was called on for all who would call the name of Christ. And even more simple than that, uh, in terms of a call to action, I believe there is a uh, a very simple way that we are to view ourselves as Christians. And I think that's what, what I want to share with you today, the way we are to see ourselves in light of what Christ has done. And so uh, I, I want to speak to you today from my favorite book of the Bible, from First Peter. I know I've preached from that book before on this pulpit, but I'm glad to go back to it again. If you'll turn with me to First Peter chapter 2, uh, and as you turn there, let me just give you a quick background to remind you of who we're, we're, we're reading about. These are, these are Christians that Peter is writing to um, that are scattered around the dispersion, scattered around Asia Minor. They are living in a society and a culture that, by and large, rejects them, that uh, is opposed to them because of their secular and pagan beliefs. They, they live a life that is in direct opposition to the life that, that these believers have been called to live because of their faith. And so they are living with a lot of uh, animosity from, from the outsiders. They are living with persecution. They are living with all kind of stuff happening to them that that would be less than, uh, less than good uh, because of their faith. And Peter, more than anything, calls them to, to embrace this life of being an outsider. He calls them to be exiles, to be strangers, to be outsiders 
That's why he greets them as that, as chosen strangers. Um, and I want to show you what that might look like for, for us today because our situation is not, not too different, even for us in the Christian country of the world, America. We are, we are exiles if, if, we, if we live this faith out the way it's supposed to be because our country and our culture does not accept and embrace and live out the, the lifestyle and the, the uh, teachings of Christ. And so if we're going to be faithful as Christians in, in America, in South Carolina in 2019, we are exiles. And so I think it's important for us to look at this passage with, with open ears as to how we are to live. So read with me, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Notice those titles he begins with for them. Much more positive than that exile, stranger, sojourner that I mentioned earlier, right? Uh, chosen people, holy nation, royal priesthood. Much more positive, right? Because he's, he's showing them something about what it means to be an exile, that, that there is something great and something beautiful about it. He's using words that, that imply a distinction, if you, if you see that, right? To be a chosen people means that there's a people that aren't chosen, right? To be a royal priesthood, it means you're elevated above, right? To be a holy nation, by definition, means to be set apart. And so these, these phrases that he uses to describe this, this group of Christians are phrases that indicate their lifestyle as separate. They're going to be different, separated. But that's not all that's there. Those words he took from the Old Testament. I don't know if, you're, if you recognize them when you saw them, but these are words that were used all throughout the Old Testament to describe the Israelites, um, God's chosen people. Uh, and so Peter is reminding them of the fact that you also are, are the chosen people of God, just like the Israelites who were called to be set apart from the nations, uh, set apart from the Egyptians who were their, their captors, set apart from, from the enemy lands that they would defeat, right? They were, they were called to be that. And he's saying, so are you as Christians here. I want to I wanna read to you. Don't, don't turn there, but I want to read to you from Exodus real quick. Keep looking at the verse we just read, verse 9, and see if you can catch any similarities in what I'm going to read from Exodus uh, chapter 19. This is, this is what God says, speaking to the Israelites. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you catch it? See where he got those phrases from? He's, he's borrowing from the Old Testament to show that it's one and the same. These are God's chosen people. And it's a great reminder for us that this is a work that God has started, that God has done, not, not us. We did not make us God's people. We did not make us Christians. This is something that God has done. God was the one who said, I bore you on the eagle's wings. I chose you to be a people for myself. And even here what we see in 1 Peter, uh, the chosen race. And also in verse 9, he says who, that I'm the one who called you out of darkness and into light. This is something that God has initiated, that God alone is responsible for. The fact that we're in this room today worshiping Jesus is, is simply because of the fact that he has chosen us and he has brought us in. This was his doing, not ours. And it was for what purpose? Why is it that he has chosen us? According to verse 9, it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. So notice there, there's not a, 
I called you so you could come to church on Sundays. I called you to be a Christian. I called you so you could read a Bible. I, was, I called you so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness. And this is where we begin to see why it's so essential for us to be these exiles. There's a, there's a reason for it. He's called us out. He's chosen us. Now, even the next verse, verse 10, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, he borrows from the Old Testament. This is, this is a direct reference to the book of Hosea, in which we see of God's overwhelming faithfulness to the, the Israelites, even though they over and over and over again abandoned him. He said, you are my people. I will make you my people. And so he's, he's really trying to hit home to these Christians that you are, you are special because you've been chosen by God. So we get that, that we've been chosen, that this group of Christians has been chosen, they've been called. But why the life of exile? Why can't we just be chosen, be the special ones, and let that be that? Why do we have to be exiled? Why do we have to be outsiders? Well, I think we can see it right there in what we, what we read. If we're called out of darkness... And into light, there's a very clear contrast, right? Darkness and light are opposites. And we're not only called out of darkness into light, but we're called to be a holy nation. And holy means to be set apart. So we can't be called, we can't be the chosen ones without being set apart. To be chosen by God is to become an outsider to the world. Because holy living does not in any way align with the way the world works. It doesn't at all. And since we have been called by Him who is holy, which is what Peter says a chapter earlier, he says, he says, conduct yourselves as holy because He who called you is holy. That's what he says. So what I see here is that the input of Christ's holiness in us must result in the output of holiness in our living, in our actions, in our speech. It, it's required. It doesn't otherwise... We're not the chosen ones. That's, that's what go, they go hand in hand. If we're going to be the chosen ones, it's also required that we be the outsiders, the exiles. Let's continue. He goes on in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There goes that phrase again, sojourners, exiles. He's, he repeats this a lot throughout the book because he really wants to drive home that this is something to be embraced, not something to run away from. He constantly reminds them, you are the outsiders and it's okay. But here's the deal with that. Very easily that could become a, a calling that would be quite lonely. I mean, you think about the, he's asking us to, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our schools and wherever we go, to be the outsiders, to be the strangers. That's a lonely calling, right? I mean, if we, if we really are going to live it out, which is why it's so significant that he addresses him in that verse 11 the way he does. Look at that first word in verse 11. Mine says, beloved. Maybe yours says, dear friends or brothers. See what he's doing there? He's, he's reminding them, yes, it will be a lonely calling to be an exile in the world around you. That it rejects you and may persecute you. But there's a place where you belong and where you fit. And when you walk in these doors and are surrounded by your brothers and sisters, your fellow exiles, that's where we get recharged from that week, that long week of being emptied for being an exile, of being hated for being an exile. We come back in here with our brothers and our sisters and we, we get recharged. That's the church. 
I love that he greets them as, as, as beloved, despite the fact that they're outsiders. It's like he's saying, hey, you're called to be an, an, an alien out there, but so am I. Let's do it together. And together, it, it's a little bit easier, right? It's, it's a little more doable when we know we're not the only one living it. And that's, that's what he's asking of them to, to do. So this is why it's so important that other places throughout First, First Peter, he calls them to love. He calls them, when it comes to the family of God, he says to love one another with, earnestly from a pure heart in chapter one. And then in chapter three, he says to have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Peter knows that if the church is gonna operate as it's supposed to, as exiles, as outsiders, they're gonna have to come together and be united and, and hold each other up and love one another. And that's our calling as well, to support one another as exiles, wherever we have to go. He goes on in verse 12 uh, to say, keep your, oh, excuse me, I, I, I'm jumping ahead. As well in verse 11, he says, so I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now we see here the life of an exile is, is not just about watching yourself from the outside world, protecting yourself, separating yourself from the outside world. Notice the outside enemy is, is just as important to be aware of as the inside enemy. He says to wage war against your very soul, to guard yourself from the desires of your flesh. Peter's reminding them that although they've been washed by the blood of Christ, they've been made new, they still have a flesh they must battle with. And the reason that being in exile is so difficult is because the way the world acts is the way we want to act. It's in our very nature to do that, to live that way, to appease the desires that we have. And he's reminding them, if you're going to be effective as an outsider, if you're going to be an alien to the world, it's required that you wage war with yourself. I think about uh, my time at the beach a couple weeks ago with, with family. We would send our six-year-old Matthew out to go, go and play when we needed a little break. And, you know, telling him he had to stay. With, the water couldn't get above his waist. So he had to be able to see, you know, his waist and up. If I can't see your belly button, you're too far. Um, and it, there, because of this, the very strong riptides that were there pretty much every day we were there, if you took your eyes off of him for five seconds, I mean, he was 15, 20 yards down the beach, you know, just going along the beach. Not because he had the, the mindset of going there, not because he intentionally did that, but simply in playing and enjoying the beach, he was carried away by the current. And I think you see where I'm, where I'm going with this. This isn't a, a deep analogy here, right? This is, this is what happens to us when we think we can coast, when we think we can drift. We're carried away by our own desires. The reason that I think so many of us aren't able to, to live day in and day out as outsiders is because we've got been carried right back into looking just like the world, living just like the world, thinking just like the world that we're called to be set apart from. If we're going to be exiles, it's going to take a daily and consistent and intentional uh, motivation to flee ourselves and to fight against ourselves because nobody, nobody drifts their way into holy living. It just doesn't happen. It won't happen. And so if we're going to be exiles, we have to wage war with ourselves. But, but why? What, where, what is this building to? We get it. We're chosen. We get it. We're meant to be set apart. We get it. We got to wage war against ourselves. We get it. But what's this for, for what? We already mentioned it in verse 9 that the so that was that we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And verse 12 is going to show us how we get to that point. 
Read with me in verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, when he refers to these Gentiles here, it's not just a reference to an ethnic group. It's, it's really a kind of a blanket statement for all of the people that we're called to be exiles from, right? The people that we're set apart from, the outsiders looking in. Those who have either rejected the gospel or not heard the gospel. And he's telling us that the reason we want to keep our conduct honorable among them, the reason that we are to live holy lives in the eyes of the world is so that when they see us and they see that distinction, even though they want to hate us, even though they want to persecute us, they can't help but notice something in us. And some of them, some of them may glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what he says. Now this day of visitation that he's talking about is is this day of final judgment, a day when God will return and he will exhibit his, his justice and his judgment on his enemies and when he will exhibit his grace and his mercy on his chosen ones. It's a day that's exciting for us, but it's a day that brings terror to his enemies. And this is the urgency of Peter's message. Because if that day of visitation were, for whatever reason, to be today, July 28th, 2019, there would be billions of people on the wrong side of His grace. For a mixture of reasons. Either because they're part of the millions and millions across the nations who have never heard, or because they've downright chosen to reject Him, or maybe even because they've grown up in small-town Christian America and been, been told to believe that because their parents are Christians, they're Christians and they're good, and they've been misled. Whatever reason, there are, there are billions of people who are not ready for this day of visitation. And this is the urgency for us. Our call to be set apart, our call to be exiles, is because that day is coming. And we must, we must be ready for it when we get here. We must live as outsiders so that our witness might reach the insiders before it's too late, while there's time. Now, I know that we have low numbers today for an awesome reason. Low numbers in a church usually mean either you don't care about missions or you care too much. And I'm glad that it's because we care too much here at Mount Airy. I'm glad that we have representatives in Kenya and in Boston supporting uh, the church and reaching out to the lost. I'm so thankful for that, and I hope it continues But let's make one thing very clear. Those left behind, we're not off the hook. Like We're not the the fans watching them go. We have a responsibility as well. While they're gone and once they get back, to to live lives as outsiders so that our lost friends and our lost co-workers and our lost neighbors might see something in us. Now, maybe you've heard the, the statement from uh, it's an old statement from St. Francis. Have you ever, ever heard this before? He said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Ever heard that before? Nice statement, right? It's, it's it, kind of encouraging for those of us who are less likely to speak up about things, right? We like that. And it's a good statement. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think part of what Peter's saying here is in our holy living, the way we live out our witness, we can influence people. We can point them in the right direction. But it's an incomplete statement. To think that simply by living as an exile, 
my lost friends are going to be smart enough to follow my example. Scripture makes it very clear. Paul says to the Romans that salvation comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, hearing the words of Christ. Let me, let me make this very, very simple. If, if there is any chance whatsoever that our lost neighbors and our lost friends and our lost family members and our lost coworkers and our lost children and our lost teammates and classmates are ever going to have a saving knowledge of Christ, it will only be because we spoke up. Because we said something. It's the only way. And so our, our holy lifestyle, our holy living as exiles, must go a step further. It has to reach the point of speech. And I think we're going to see that connection. I want to show you in, in chapter 3 how he connects that idea of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ to this idea of letting your, your conduct set an example. Um, if you look in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, very quickly... Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you hear that? Do you see the connection between living as exiles and reaching the lost? What he's saying here is that if we're living it out, if we are being the outsiders that we're supposed to see and acting as holy ones following Christ, people will see something and notice it. They'll see it. And it's implied here that they will ask about it. He says, give a reason. You don't give a reason unless someone asks you something, right? Like, they're, they're going to see it and it's going to be so obvious that they ask you about it. And when they do, you tell them. You tell them the hope that is in you. What he's saying here is that the work that Christ has done in us to raise us from our spiritual deadness and give us a, a hope in Him, freedom from our sins and our shame and eternity with Him in heaven should produce something called hope that makes us look different. And if we're exhibiting that, if we're living in that, people will ask. Unless we stay in our rooms all day long. They will ask. And if they ask, we got to speak up. We have to tell it. We have to proclaim the excellencies of what he has done. So if it's not happening, because maybe you're like me, maybe you, you see like day in, day out, this is not happening. And if it is, it is so awkward, right? If it's not happening, it's got to be for just one of a couple of reasons. Either we're not exhibiting that hope. We're not giving our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers a reason to question us. Because we look just like they do. Or we are. And we're just not speaking up when they ask. Either way, we've got to fix something. I recently read a book. It's called Evangelism as Exiles. It was all about the book of 1 Peter, so I loved it. Written by a guy named Elliot Clark. And I want you to hear what he says about why most of us don't share the gospel. He says, if evangelism doesn't exist, it's because worship doesn't. Praise is the most natural thing in the world for us to do, and we do it all the time. We brag about our favorite sports team. We rave about our favorite restaurants. We shamelessly tell others about the deals we find online. We cannot stop talking about the latest Netflix series or our last vacation. We adore musicians, endorse politicians, and fawn over celebrities. We promote our kids' school and post about our morning coffee. We sing our praises about just about everything, even gluten-free pizza. But ask us to raise our voices in praise to God outside of weekend worship, and we struggle to string together a whole sentence. 
He goes on. So it's obvious. Our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken. It's because our hearts are. Because if we worship God as we should, our neighbors, co-workers, and friends would be the first to hear about it. Those are hard words for me to read. Especially as I think about the conversations I've had in the last week. Especially as I think about how easy it is for me to start a conversation about Clemson football or about how much I hope the summer doesn't end. And yet how hard it is for me to cross that line away from these trivial, meaningless topics and enter into talking about the way that my entire life changed. Why is that? I think fear has a lot to do with it. I mean, I think, I think in many ways we're, we're afraid. We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of what they'll do. We don't want to rock the boat. We're afraid of offending someone. Um, we're afraid of losing friendships or losing our place, maybe our position at work. Many, many reasons that might motivate us to have fear to be silent. But I definitely think fear is it. And I want to show you in, in these closing moments that fear is not necessarily the wrong reaction to have. If it's pointed in the right direction. And let me show you real quick, uh, as we're here in, in 1 Peter, back at chapter 1. I know I'm jumping all over this book. Chapter 1, verse 17. This is what Peter says. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter is calling us to fear. He's calling us to have fear. So I, don't, I definitely don't think it's, I would say that it's wrong to be afraid when it comes to living your life the way God wants us to live. But there's a, di- a distinction here. We miss it in the ESV a little bit, but in the NIV calls it a reverent fear. And I think when we notice that word reverent, there's probably, uh, you know, a recognition here of who we're aiming that fear at. Now, all the reasons I gave you for why we don't share is because of fear of what? Fear of man and fear of what man thinks of me, fear of what man might do to me. But a reverent fear is a fear that's aimed towards God, a fear of God. If it's not completely clear, just look at the fact at how he starts this verse. He begins by reminding them that they have a father who is an impartial judge and then says, so be afraid. So it's clear who the fear is aimed towards. Our calling is to remember that we are to fear God in the way that we speak about Him. And if He has clearly commanded us to speak up about our faith and we're silent, what we're indicating is we fear man and what man might do to us more than we fear the God who saved us. But that's not all. Notice the two ways that God is defined in that verse, verse 15. He's called a father. He's also called an impartial judge who will one day judge according to each man's deeds. One I'm much more looking forward to meeting than the other. For those of us who have been chosen, we see him as a father. Yes, he is that impartial judge, but when he sees our record, it's clean because of what Christ has done. But our lost friends, they will face the impartial judge. They will face the one who judges according to each one's deeds and every one of them will be guilty. No way out of it. 
Our fear of God must extend to the point of being concerned for that fate. If we're not concerned about what's awaiting our lost friends, then I really question some things. So, it's okay to fear, but our fear should lead us to speak up, not to be silent. And that's what's so important. He's calling us to be outsiders who speak up when we're questioned. That many might be brought in. That many might come to faith. I think of the example of a man that has really become a hero of mine. His name is David Brainerd. Um, and he was a, a young Christian in, in the mid-1700s who, when he, when he became a Christian in his early 20s, decided he wanted to devote his life to reaching the Native Americans um, in Delaware and surrounding states around the USA. And he gave the rest of his life to that. And I started as, you know, in his early 20s, gave the rest of his life to that, which might sound like a ton, but he died at 29. So died very young. He was sickly his, his whole life, very weak, very lonely, but he was faithful. And I want you to hear what he said about this task that he felt he had been given. He said, I could have no freedom in the thought of any other circumstances or business in life. There's nothing else for me in this world but to do this. This is all I want. All my desire was the conversion of the heathen, and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself with hopes of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintances, and enjoying worldly comforts. Do you notice the devotion in this young man's voice? The singular focus he has? He sees his life as a young guy, not a long life ahead of him. He knows it. He knows knows it's not going to last long. But what he has, he says, I'm going to give it all to this task. To living as an alien, literally an alien in these these Native American tribes. And I'm going to proclaim the excellencies of him who sent me. And I am confident that today he stands in the presence of God. No longer battling tuberculosis or all the other ailments that plagued him. He's standing strong. And if he looks behind him, I guarantee you he sees countless Native Americans who found faith in Christ because of what he did. Because he was willing to devote himself to that. Which brings me really right back to where I started. What is the single most important thing that you can do for the rest of your life to glorify God? Now I know even as I asked that question, some of you just got real comfortable in your seats. Because the answer is this big thing and it's way off in the future when I have had more education or I'm a little bit older, I've raised the funds or I, I go to seminary or I retire or whatever it may be, all these reasons to put off some big grand display of, of your faith. And so maybe even in asking that question, what you can do for the rest of your life is too broad of a question. Maybe I'll, I'll simplify it just, just a bit. What's the most important thing you can do this week to glorify God? Maybe it's starting to disciple your family, your children. Maybe it's deciding to read and read scripture and pray with your spouse. Maybe it's a neighbor that you know you should speak with that you've, you've failed to have that conversation with because of fear. Or a coworker, or a friend or a teammate. 
Maybe it's a group of people you meet with regularly that you say, you know what, I can do something better with this, this, this time we have together. Maybe you're thinking of lost people who need the gospel. Maybe you're thinking of saved people who need to be pushed further along. This isn't just about saving the lost. We want to disciple and build up those who are already under our care. The first person on my list is my six-year-old son, Matthew. Whoever it is, and whatever the situation may be, there are people around us this week that if we will take the initiative to now, we might have an opportunity to reach. Here's my fear, and this is why I make it so plain this week. Is I'm afraid that if, if we don't commit ourselves to something now while it's fresh, while we're thinking about it, we're quick to forget. And we're quick to walk out those doors and drift right back into a life of being unproductive and unfruitful in the work of Christ if we aren't willing to commit to something now. And it'll be a couple weeks down the road when we'll get around to it, when some other preacher steps up and tells us we should. This is me. I'm guilty of this. I think over and over and over again of the people I should speak with, and then I don't. So I'm going to ask you something. And you may not, may not like this. I won't be here next week, so you, it's okay if you don't like this, but I want to ask you to. Will you consider... Thinking of three people right now that you know you're going to bump into. You know you have influence over. You'll see them at work, see them after work, see them at home, maybe sleep in a bed beside them every night this week. Are there three people who need what you have? Will you write their names down? Will you remember that? Put it on your hand, put it on your forehead. It'll make the conversation a lot easier to get started when they see their name on your head. But will you commit to do something this week as an exile, as an outsider who is willing to proclaim the excellencies of him who sent you? I want to challenge you not to come back in those doors next Sunday until you have. Because if we don't start now, when will we? This is our calling. This is our our privilege. This is what it all comes down to. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word and what it says about us. I thank you that we have been chosen. We've been called out of death. We've been called out of a life of wandering. And we have found your freedom and your forgiveness. We've found your hope. God, I ask that that hope, that joy that comes from that would launch us into the world around us, would send us out with, with fresh motivation to speak to those around us to live our lives in such a way that people see something different in us and when they see it that we would not back down from speaking up god i pray that for each one of us here today we would leave here with a with a focus focus even on three individuals and god i pray that you would be made much of in our lives this week as we seek to exalt you as exiles in your name we pray amen